Hello and good morning to each and every single one of you. Whether you're with me here bright and early or popping in tonight, I appreciate you taking the time. Truly. I don't think it's that trashy. I think it's kind of cool. But I've been not really dumpster diving, but my brother said it dumpster adjacent diving. There's been a lot of people moving out of my apartment complex and just putting their like TVs and vacuums and wine glasses and everything they don't want to throw away in there. And the other day I found three massive canvas paintings. And I've been, I mean, my walls are bare. So I couldn't have been happier. I mean, like you see the big buffalo or ox one at Target and that's like a hundred bucks. So I can't imagine how much these are. They're much better than that. Anyways, I'm a huge fan of dumpster adjacent diving now. My best friend from childhood, babyhood, just showed up today, or left today. I had written this originally um, for us to do together a few days ago while he was here. But unfortunately, we had a little mic to baggle. Suffice to say, my setup is capable of a single person. But hopefully in the future, we can get something going. But he was here from Minnesota, and I couldn't have been any happier. We went hiking. Um, it was just a wonderful time. Both of our parents were English teachers at the same high school. Uh, they're retired now, but 20-some years ago. And uh, when they couldn't find someone else to watch us, they had these two adjoining rooms, and we were able to sit inside this like storage unit closet in between the adjoining rooms and just play. And those are essentially my earliest memories. We were... We, we just played with Legos or spent way too many hours spinning each other around in an office chair. Been best friends ever since. And in honor of his visit, today we will be covering a serial killer duo. I'm always astonished at how easily or how often these type of people find each other and connect over horrific fantasies. You've got the people who fall in love and kill together, like Fred and Rosemary West, who I share a birthday with, Miss West, not to brag. Or you've got the other people who end up sharing the same cell in prison, only to go on and commit more of the same act that put them there, except together now. For example, Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris. According to the website Ranker, these two men met in San Luis where they bonded over their mutual interest of sexual sadism. Like, wonderful, let's just put these two guys together so they can only escalate. And after they were released from prison, Bittaker and Norris reunited and embarked on their reign of terror. The duo preyed upon teenage girls who were hitchhiking along Southern California highways, using a toolbox filled with instruments to inflict pain before strangling their victims to death. Authorities apprehended the pair, whom the media eventually dubbed the Toolbox Killers, when Norris told one of his friends about the brutal crimes he had committed with Bittaker. And finally, we have the killing duos, or killing groups, who are simply born and bred into it. A family trait. There's so many stories of, like, old-timey 1800s frontier families that would take in strangers and rob them and kill them and throw them in the basement. But for killing duos as a family, the most notable in my book may very well be the Hillside Stranglers, 
often confused for only a single strangler, cousins Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Jr. Angelo Buono Jr. abducted approximately 10 women around Los Angeles, women and girls. After the cousins killed their victims, ranging in age from 12 to 28, the two disposed of their bodies in remote areas all over LA. Those examples are just a very small fraction of the many, many killing pairs or groups, like I had said, in existence, which, to reiterate, is crazy how often it happens. But today, I bring you childhood best friends, John Duffy and David Mulcahy. Mulcahy, I believe I'm saying that right. Also known as the Railway Killers. My name is Eli, and this is Murder in the Morning. My sources today come from the U.S. Sun, Ranker.com, and Wikipedia. John Duffy and his friend David Mulcahy were born in England in 1958. Oh yes, we are in England today, mates. Ta-da! The two both attended the same school called Haverstock in North London, where they became inseparable. What began as a seemingly normal childhood quickly evaporated during a single act. The young boys, still in elementary school, I don't know if they call it that in England, were found outside laughing, covered in blood, which in in and of itself is just inherently creepy, but it was later it was later discovered that the boys had bludgeoned a small hedgehog to death and then played in their blood. I'm just imagining that it was at the time the class's pet hedgehog traumatizing every other kid in attendance for the rest of the year. But instead, the two became the subject of bullying for the remainder of their time in school, hopefully avoiding any more animal cruelty, but probably not. Not much else is known about these two kids' early life. However, after finishing school, Duffy found himself a wife, and they began a family. But in 1982, London was hit with a string of rapes and attacks like nothing they had ever seen. On July 1st, the pair raped an unnamed woman near Hampstead Heath Railway Station, marking the start of their spree. Quote, 18 more women were attacked over the next year, mostly late at night in dark, quiet places, often near railway stations in and around North London, especially Hampstead. In a bid to catch the culprit, initially, they weren't sure if the crimes were carried out by just one person. So poli- uh, police set up Operation Heart the largest investigation to take place in the UK since the Yorkshire River, end quote. The following year, in 1983, the attacks abruptly stopped for a few short months during fall, and it's later found out that this resting period was due to Duffy and his wife separating. Duffy was just having a sad boy fall and apparently lacked the motivation to get out there. But his friend must have got him back on the horse early in 1984 because the assault picked back up and this time continued through 1985. In fact, and this part is just despicable, the two men raped three women in one night. One 
friggin' night. Also, probably should have said this a couple minutes ago at the beginning, but trigger warning for sexual assault and violence. So sorry. The police brought Duffy and Mulcahy in for questioning since they'd been in the area, and Duffy was already known to police for brandishing knives and practicing martial arts in public. I mean, maybe not David Mulcahy right away, but this Duffy guy was just an odd character. Wherever he was, brought attention to himself, and the police figured they'd bring him in for questioning. Unfortunately, without any physical evidence or witnesses, nothing to go on really, the two were released. After another attack in the fall of 1985, the victim was able to give a description of her attacker, and Duffy was once again picked up for questioning. And once again, he was released. This time because the woman was unable to ID him in a quote, identity parade, which I thought was odd. But then I remembered I'm reading about a British case and I figured that's the British version of our police lineup. And it turns out, yep, that's exactly it. Just like they say boot instead of the trunk of a car. Anyway, the two get off scot-free yet again. In December of 1985, the two escalated to murder. And just a heads up, again, I know I hit that first heads up a little bit late. This part gets even more graphic. Quote, on December 29, 1985, Allison Day, who was 19, was dragged off of a train by Duffy and David at knife point and raped repeatedly. She was then strangled with a piece of string and her body was sunk into the River Lee using discarded cobbles or granite stones placed into her coat pockets. Then, Miss Margie Tambozer, who was 15, was abducted from Horsley Station in East Surrey on April 17, 1986. After being raped and then strangled, the teenager's body was set on fire. On May 18th, the victim was a local TV presenter, Ann Locke. This time 29, she was abducted as she got off a train in Hertfordshire and later murdered. In October of 1986, a 14-year-old schoolgirl managed to survive after she was raped by both men. And then finally, while stalking a woman in a park on November 7th, Duffy was discovered and arrested. The next day, he was charged with three murders and seven counts of rape. End quote. It only took three arrests, but they were finally confident that this man who always seemed to be in and around the scene of the crime, was their suspect. And quick break, I know for all of our non-British listeners, most of these locations won't make any sense to you. I've been to London and I don't remember a single place or a single name and where that might be. Essentially, they were doing these texts all over London. I know we focused a lot on North London, but it was... North London, London, and all the surrounding areas. Some attacks, like if you were to take a train during rush hour, it would be an hour or two from where another attack would have been. And this dispersed nature of the attacks confused police during the early days of the investigation. So much so that renowned psychologist turned profile, David Cantor of the University of Surrey, took notice. I know this may be working a bit backwards since. Duffy was just arrested in our story timeline, but I love criminal profiles and profi profilers, so bear with me. 
According to Cantor's case study, his profile went as such. Physical characteristics, mid to late 20s, light hair, about 5'9", and right-handed. Occupation, probably semi-skilled, involving weekend work or casual labor from July 1984 onwards. His job most likely does not bring him into contact with the public. As for his character, he likely keeps to himself, but has one or two very close male friends and probably very little contact with women, especially in a work situation. He has knowledge of the railway system along which the attacks happened. As for his sexual activity, the variety of his sexual actions suggests considerable sexual experience. When it comes to his criminal record, he was probably arrested sometime between October 24, 1982 and January of 1984, and this attack may have had nothing to do with rape, but will have been aggressive and under the influence of drink or drugs. So that's just a quick overview of this David Cantor's profile. Although not a perfect profile, and still only a single profile, Duffy ended up fitting 13 out of the 17 total observations that Cantor made. Duffy was then tried in February of 1988 and convicted of two murders and four rapes. He chose not to appeal his sentence, unlike most murderer dimwits, and later said he regretted his actions. Still, David Mulcahy remained a free man. Duffy, although somewhat cooperative, maintained he was by himself. However, police were certain that these attacks were done more were done by more than a single person. And as it turned out, later that year in prison, Duffy finally revealed that he had been working with someone, but still wouldn't name who. It would be a full ten years after his conviction that Duffy finally broke. He had begun counseling about two years prior, and this really opened him up. I mean, as much as a serial killer can open up, I suppose. Besides giving up his partner, Duffy also confessed to many more crimes over the years and explained the duo's actions and thoughts leading up to the attacks. He explained that they would listen to Thriller by Michael Jackson at full volume to psych themselves up before every time they raped a woman and then killed her, or how they would good cop, bad cop their victims in order to scare and control them. And when David Mulcahy was finally arrested in 1999, he was married with four children. Blows my mind. Immediately, this arrogant man denied all of the allegations, but Duffy had already said too much. The second trial began in September of 2000. Over a 14-day period, Duffy extensively went over all of the crimes he could remember the two committed. Can you imagine attacking women so often that you start to forget each individual time? Insanity. In the end, David Mulcahy was convicted of seven rapes and three murders, giving him three life sentences for each murder and 24 additional years for each rape charge. Duffy was also charged with an additional 15 counts to those other uh, crimes he had confessed to 10 years later. Long story short, these two men will never be getting out of prison. But I just, 
I wonder it. I asked myself without if Duffy never went to prison therapy, right? And if he never opened up a decade later, would David Mulcahy ever have been found out? I mean, back in 99, wasn't tried until 2000. What year was he born in? Uh, 1959. That would make him 60, 40. Yeah, he'd just—he'd probably just be a grandpa right now. Well, he probably is a grandpa. He had four kids. Oh, that's so weird. Thank God that Duffy finally allowed himself to uh, snitch a little bit. But I'm glad they're both in jail. And that is all I have for you today, folks. Again, sorry, I had written it more as a uh, trying to find space for conversations or questions that I could ask Andrew or get his input on, but I hope it wasn't that weird for anyone involved. Maybe I'll get him uh, to somehow join me from Minnesota, because I doubt it'll be a while till he comes back up to New Hampshire. Anyways, that is all. Thank you once again for listening. The small growth I see every single day is just mind-blowing, and I love it. It's just so much fun to do this, so thank you, thank you, thank you. Any feedback is appreciated, and I can't wait to see you guys next week. Bye-bye. Love you.